Hello and welcome to this episode of the MGMA Podcast. I'm Chris Harrop, Senior Editorial Manager. I'm excited today to share this episode with you because with apologies to Paul Harvey, we're giving you the rest of the story. In May of this year, myself and a team of MGMA staffers sat down to discuss the opioid epidemic with Rob Valley. He's co-founder and chief executive officer of OpiSafe. He's also a professor of clinical pharmacy at the University of Colorado Skag School of Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Studies, and he's also director of the Colorado Consortium for Prescription Drug Abuse Prevention. Rob was an invaluable resource in helping a team of writers, editors, and MGMA data analysts assemble the recent research and analysis report, Combating the Opioid Epidemic, Effective Policies and Communication Strategies. You can find a link to that in this episode's description. As MGMA writer-editor Christian Green wrote earlier this year, Rob's work with this consortium is unlike typical blue-ribbon panels or commissions established in other states to deal with the startling rise in drug abuse and overdose deaths linked to opioids. The consortium includes more than 500 people across 10 work groups to set and execute strategy for educating the public about prescription drug abuse and promoting the safe use, storage, and disposal of prescription medications. In this episode, we'd like to share some of Rob's insights beyond what we've reported to date in the RNA report and other articles about this public health emergency. So let's get right to it and hear from Rob in his own words, discuss how he came to be so involved in dealing with the opioid epidemic and his work with the Colorado Consortium. Been doing this since, well, I'll see, I was in pharmacy school in 1986 when the Colorado Prescription Drug Abuse Task Force was launched. Finished pharmacy school, worked for a couple of years, went to grad school, came back in 94. So 10 years later, I signed up to sort of volunteer for my, my community service work. So that's what I chose at the time in 96. So I've been doing it for 22 years. That it was sort of the precursor of the consortium was the Colorado Prescription Drug Abuse Task Force. And it was a very small organization. All we focused on was educating docs. So doing stuff like scam booklets, telling doctors about how they might get scammed, what you know, prescription forgeries look like, and what you know, common, common scams might be. And then doing stuff like health fairs and a little bit of, little bit of public outreach. And then over time, that thing evolved. And as this problem got bigger and bigger and bigger, um, it turned into, hey, how do we maybe have a PDMP advocacy that way? It wasn't really lobbying, but it was definitely political advocacy for what do policy solutions need to be. Talk to legislators, try to get people to, to do stuff. Uh, and then it really, we did that for a few years. And then about, I don't know, seven or eight years ago now, uh, there was kind of a turning point where the National Survey on Drug Use and Health came out. We ranked number two in self-reported non-medical use, and the governor caught wind of that and thought, we need to address this. So it was kind of a, a change where it had been going along and did some, you know, got everybody together to do strategic planning for a better part of, I don't know, seven or eight months of strategic planning, created this statewide strategic plan. And in 2013, that's when we got together and tried to decide who should implement the statewide strategic plan. I was just part of the strategic planning process, like a lot of people were. State agencies, health professions organizations, docs, nurses, dentists, vets, pharmacists, were all invited to the table. Um, treatment providers, addiction medicine, everybody. Public health, you know, all the agencies. Law enforcement, treatment courts, drug treatment courts, probation. You know, it was basically everybody that we could get together at the table to, to create this plan created this, this statewide strategic plan, and then we sat back at the very end of it and decided, you know, whose responsibility is it going to be now to implement this thing that we now have? And um, someone said, well, why don't we give it to the 501c3 task force? And so we said, well, and we decided at that point just to rename the task force the consortiums. Rob explained how the Take Meds Seriously Public Awareness campaign helped launch into the consortium's safe disposal program, Take Meds Back, and set up a new wave of public awareness work to get people to think of opioids as last resort drugs instead of a go-to for pain treatment. 
one of our big, we have 10 work groups. Mm -hmm. The one of them is public awareness. So we've done um, one large public awareness campaign, Take Med Seriously, and that launched about four years ago. But that was a statewide PA campaign on safe use, safe storage, and safe disposal. We still think those messages are relevant um, today. We're expanding our messaging, but in the last two years, we've supplemented that with a lot more on safe disposal because the state funded some safe disposal program, um, safe disposal boxes and the collection system of that. We've been calling that Take Meds Back, scaling up collection. Our public awareness has been largely so far around safe use and storage and then safe disposal. We're going to be doing more now on stigma reduction and naloxone as the next round of messaging. Our next wave of this will have some provider education money, some community-based naloxone, so that will be a public awareness about naloxone and then more on first responders as well. And then we'll be doing some stigma reduction work collaboratively with the Office of Behavioral Health. Then in time, our next targets for public awareness are around things like medication-assisted treatment. Mm -hmm. What is it? How do people do it? Alternatives to opioids. What are they? So you may not need an opioid. Mm -hmm. you know, there's other stuff that works as well, actually better than opioids, and maybe you could try some of those first and only go to the opioids if you need to, if these things don't work. So we're not saying they shouldn't be available, but maybe they should be last resort drugs, not first-line drugs. So far, Rob says the metrics on the consortium's work are promising and that Colorado has led the way in the region and the nation on safe disposal of medications. He also explains why the change has been slow to date in changing people's thinking about their own medicine cabinets. We want to be the best center for this stuff in the western half of the United States. You know, I, we're doing, we think we're doing better than our peer states in most things that we do. Number of providers educated, the public awareness of the issue, we measure public awareness and like readiness. You can measure knowledge, attitudes, beliefs, and behavioral intent. For, for those dimensions, we have shown statistically significant gains in all those things about safe use and storage and disposal and for intent to store safely and dispose of things. Then we see behind that in, in things like our metrics for safe disposal, we're the only state that we know of in the country, certainly in our region, we know them extremely well, but to our knowledge in the country that has a state-funded permanent safe disposal system. And so we take back more drugs. Even our take-back events take back more pounds per capita than all of our neighboring states in our DEA region. And we think it's because of our public awareness, all of our programming on safe disposal. Why would we take back more than everybody else? Because we've told them more about it, and we've given them options. And they hear about take back more. And they, even if you see a take back box, and if you don't do it, even just to see the take back box, you know, I mean, it really starts to change people's behavior just by knowing something is there. So we're trying to do that. And getting more people into treatment, harm reduction, we've got all the, the, the naloxone based laws passed and moving quickly. And in a short period of time, went from four departments to 188 departments carrying naloxone in Colorado, half the departments in Colorado carrying naloxone, police departments and sheriffs, which is amazing. Over 500 pharmacies have standing orders for naloxone. A year and a half ago, it was like three. So it's things like that that make us think that we're going to have some successes. And a lot of them are process measures, KPI kind of things. Or how are we doing with infrastructure and rolling out programs? And ultimately, what we want to see is fewer people that are self-reporting non-medical use or fewer people going to the emergency room or dying. Those are things we want to measure. But those, 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 indicator, those indicators take years to affect. So we know we're not going to see an immediate change in those. And people are like, well, why do overdose deaths keep going up? Even if the prescription rate starts coming down 10% a year, 13% a year, you read that in the paper, oh, it's wonderful, it's going down. 13% like a year, there's still 200 million prescriptions going out a year. Still 400,000 Coloradans getting one every month. It used to be 500,000. And so people wonder why aren't the big indicators changing that we want to see changing, but it's, it's hard to shut that faucet off about all the opioids over the years. But that's just the kind of culture we're in. So we say pain equals opioid is where we are. And it took us 25 years to get into that, and it's going to take us a little while to untangle. Wait a minute, I have alternatives. Wait a minute, 
If I do have opioids, I can get rid of them, so if someone doesn't use them in the medicine cabinet, because that's the number one vector for people to start is in the medicine cabinet, so we've been ramping up safe disposal because of it and messaging on that. And until we believe we have all that stuff out of the medicine cabinets, we're not going to stop hammering that. One of the difficult parts about the consortium's work has been in addressing rural areas where there may be slower response times from law enforcement or ambulances, as well as the difficulty trying to collect information from lay people who attempt to administer naloxone for opioid overdoses. We're getting reports back. It's spotty, and it has a reporting function in it, and you can report a reversal when one was done. It tells you how to do a reversal. Our new system that we're coming out with is going to be like, where can I get Narcan? Where can I get someone into treatment? Like, find the nearest treatment facility to me geocoded on the map. And so, here's where all the treatment resources are around me. I'm just called the closest one. So a treatment locator. But we have a report function that we've got probably 25 or 30 departments that are using it. And we've collected about 250 law enforcement-based reversals in that system in the first year and 14 months. So that's good. But we know there's a lot more going on that we aren't counting. And it's an issue because EMS has its own reporting, and that's really good data because they've been reporting stuff for forever. So they know how often they do it and how many doses they gave and all that stuff. But we don't know what about law enforcement and what about lay people. No idea. Yeah. Nobody has any idea whatsoever. And we're starting to try to crack that nut on how do we collect from law enforcement and, and lay people. Because that's going to be equally important. What if someone does not have an EMS? Mm -hmm. What do they do before an EMS got there? And that may be why the EMS has somebody to revive. It's because someone gave them naloxone. The yeah. Because often EMS comes and, sorry, someone's dead. They give it to them anyway in hopes, but they've already got no pulse. They've already got no respiration but they give it anyway. So that goes down as an attempted reversal as a failed one. You know, but we're trying to because there's, an often, there's often times, especially out in rural areas, where the bus doesn't arrive. First person there is, is, the, is the sheriff's deputy yeah. and no one else. It's 45 minutes until the ambulance gets there. Right. And if they don't have Narcan, the person's dead. Right. So we're trying to do that and push it out, but it's hard to get data. The, the trouble is on the reports, it's hard to get data. Another intriguing aspect of the handling of opioid prescriptions is the rise of Electronic Prescribing of Controlled Substances, or EPCS. Many states have gone from merely allowing the practice to some mandating electronic prescribing, which has its own set of drawbacks depending on patient behavior, as Rob explains. It's a good and bad to have e-prescribing of controlled substances. I think the upside is nearly perfect for things like, hey, I want to just get you your Lipitor, and you can walk down to your pharmacy and be sitting there. Right. right. That's, uh, because you're not going to call me at 2 o'clock in the morning on Sunday morning asking for more Lipitor. But with opioids, it's a different thing. People know and immediately know about what the laws are. And I believe the docs are right on this one. We'll start immediately calling them after hours every single day and on weekends every single weekend asking for more because they know docs can or must be prescribed. And they already can, but docs can then say, I just don't. If they have to, it changes the game. And I believe, that's the, I believe them when they say that one. But there's also a cost. It's just enough to be a hassle that they don't see that as being a value. They need to bring the price down on e-prescribing if they want to do it. And e-prescribing controlled substances, though, it's just it's a tough one. It brings that into the game of, uh, just give me a few more for the weekend then. I know you can e-prescribe it. So practices have said, look, all we do is we physically see you during regular hours, and we physically write a prescription for you. Right. That's how we do it. And that's been done for a reason, though. That wasn't to be technologically yeah. simplistic on its own. It was to keep control over what could become a wildfire of constant oh, middle-of-the-night asks. It could potentially upset the apple cart when you say, oh, now you, you must e-prescribe. I guess you could still have an agreement saying, look, I just don't take those calls. Now, that's what's probably going to have to happen is mm -hmm. the agreements get amended. I don't take the calls on weekends. Don't ask me to e-prescribe. I'm not going to do it. You still have to come in. 
no matter which way we send the prescription, you still have to come in, the rules still apply. And patients, and especially people with use disorders, know what the law is really well. This sampling of our earlier conversation with Rob is just a fraction of what he'll discuss when he speaks October 2nd during the 2018 MGMA Annual Conference in Boston. His concurrent session is called 60 Seconds to Opioid Best Practices. To learn more about his session how to register for annual conference, please visit mgma.com Boston. Be sure to visit the episode description for more MGMA resources regarding the opioid epidemic. I'm Chris Harrop, and thank you for listening. Thank you.